Talk Shoes. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Beginning of Saturdays. Thank you for listening. Tonight, I'm going to present a paper that I wrote back towards the end of 2006, and Clifton Emmerheiser had um, published in his teaching letters. Back in 2006 and 2007, Clifton published 20, I believe, teaching letters of his that I had written that represented my um, the, the paper that today is on Chris DeGuinney or his William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. And this paper... was more or less an outgrowth of that work. In that collection of of papers I had written for Clifton, I had more or less addressed probably not all, but most of the criticisms that that certain people that are very critical of Paul of Tarsus have of Paul of Tarsus. um, A lot of people blame Paul of Tarsus for the churches, the, the, the later Catholic churches, universalism. And and Paul cannot be blamed for that at all, as I hope to demonstrate tonight. They also blame Paul for the structure and the organization and later tyranny and and oppression of of the Romish Catholic Church, and neither can Paul be blamed for that. The collection of assemblies that Paul left behind at the end of his own ministry and for the next several hundred years were nothing like the later Catholic Church. Even the word Catholic, and and this isn't in my paper, but let me explain that word, because that word, (laughs) that word is probably one one of the most misunderstood words in history. Not only Christian history, in history. And, And the word Catholic comes from two Greek words. Kata, which means down. Down, or according to in certain um, in, in certain contexts, it means according to. Very often, it's translated that in, in that manner in the King James version of the New Testament, where, where the Greek word "kata," which most literally means "down," means according to, and, and it's used in that manner when when it's used in front of a name like "kata Matthew," what would be according to Matthew, and it actually is Matthion actually is the title of the Gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew. So that's what kata means, and, and when the verb, well, I'm sorry, when the preposition is, um, appears before a word that begins with the letter H in English, it, it's cath, and, and it's spelled K-A-T-H by the Greeks. Now, the word hollis means whole. That's all it means. So Catholic comes from two Greek words, which basically mean according to the whole. And later writers basically translated that to a Latin word that could be interpreted as meaning universal in English. 
But it didn't ever in the earliest church writers. In the earliest church writers, the earliest Christian writers, the word Catholic was very infrequently used. It, it only occurs a couple of times. And, and it never meant to describe the application of the Christian faith. It only meant to describe the reception of the Christian faith in the earliest church writers. That is the original use of the word. Why did it mean to describe that? And I'll explain that. In the ancient Mediterranean world, we had three types of religious people coming from the Hebrew tradition. The first type were the Jews, the people of Judea, who rejected the whole New Testament. Okay, so they were Jews. The second type were the Ebionite Christians and related sects that rejected the entire Old Testament and only accepted the New Testament. The people that were Catholic accepted the entire Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament and the Gospels, because we can't really call it a New Testament yet, right? So they accepted Christianity and the Old Testament, and therefore they accepted the faith according to the whole, the Catholic faith. That was the original meaning of the word. It was never to be applied to the application of the faith in a universal fashion, as the later Romish church actually perverted the meaning of the word. So here is my paper, Misconceptions Concerning Paul and the Church. This is probably going to be a lengthy evening. I will probably not want to take calls tonight. Next week, I, I will do my best because I, I shorted people on calling last week also. Next week, I'll do my best and, and do a shorter presentation and try to have an open forum and encourage people to call in. Misconceptions concerning Paul and the church. So many men look at the... The impressive behemoth, which calls itself the Roman Catholic Church. And then they foolishly place the blame for the creation of this monster and its offspring upon Paul of Tarsus, as if he ever developed such a thing. In doing so, these men are only repeating the Romish Church's lies, by which it claims an apostolic founding. And they give them credence as if what they say is true, and their claims certainly are not true. It should be evident to nearly anybody that the apostles probably wrote many more epistles than those which we have in our Bibles. That if we possess them, we may possibly have a more complete picture of their ideal model for the function and structure of the truly Christian community. However, 
not out of line with that spirit of simplicity, which is an object of Christian teaching, it may very well be that we need none other than the scant instruction which we do have. Here we shall examine precisely what the New Testament books, and especially the letters of Paul, really do say concerning the organization and management of the Christian community. In the apocryphal books, the later apocryphal books, are found some writings in the so-called epistles of Ignatius, for instance, which do attempt to clarify or enhance the instructions in our Bibles. For instance, the, the instructions to um, ministers and supervisors, or bishops, if I must, that we find in 1 Timothy. These writings must be rejected and viewed with suspicion, not only because they often conflict with Paul's writing, but they also because they bear full support for the organized Romish church structure as we later know it. They are most certainly mere forgeries, and many commentaries have actually professed as much. Therefore, all such post-apostolic writing shall be ignored in the presentation of this paper, except for a couple of certain exceptions, which I'll mention as, as we proceed. Both the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 and Yahshua Christ himself in Revelation chapter 13 recorded beforehand the troubles, and, and actually prophesied beforehand, the troubles that the Romish church leadership would cause for us in later history. These things are a clear matter of prophecy once those prophecies are elucidated. Once one obtains a sound knowledge of history, the meanings of these prophecies and many others become astonishingly clear. Yet this foreknowledge by God of the Romish church surely is not a divine blessing of such an organization that it may somehow be considered righteous and legitimate. Note Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, where warned that Satan rules this world. The princes of this age are the adversaries of God. For the prophecies themselves put forth a declaration quite to the contrary, that the Romish church and, and most of our civil governments would be unrighteous and tyranny, tyrannical. Rather, it must be understood, and this is something that Christians easily lose sight of, that the children of Israel were prophesied to be punished for seven times for their disobedience. Leviticus chapter 26. A time in prophecy is 360 years. Seven times 360 is 2,520 years. This period began with the Assyrian invasions and the deportations of the children of Israel, which occurred from 741 to 676 B.C. That was the 65 years of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 7-8. The two beasts of Revelation 13, entities which are also outlined in Daniel chapter 7 in his prophecy, those two beasts are the succession of ancient world empires, which are also described in a different manner in Daniel chapter 2, and ended with the Roman Empire, that's the first beast, followed by the popery of the Romish church, which is 
the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. I did a separate program on this in my Revelation series back earlier this year. Each of these beasts was to last for approximately 1,260 years. Revelation 13.5 dates the first beast. Daniel 7.25 dates the second. They're both talking about those same entities. 1,260 years is three and a half times of Scripture. 3.5 times 360 is 1,260, or also 42 months, 42 times 30 being 1,260, a day being a year in prophecy. That a day is a year in prophecy, we can see Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, or Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. A study of history surely does reveal that each of these beasts did endure for about 1,260 years. It is certainly evident that both the succession of ancient empires and the Romish church were a part of Yahweh's means of punishing the children of Israel for their disobedience. There is much more that could be said here. However, it suits not the purpose of this discussion, and I covered it recently in my Revelation series, right? In great detail, I pray. It is evident that the organization of the Romish church was very closely patterned after the imperial Roman government and also incorporated the major elements of the pagan Roman religion. The popes were very much like the Roman emperors in many respects and exercised authority over the kings of Europe for many centuries. The title pontiff comes from the Latin word pontifex. Pontifex is derived from the Latin word pontis, which means a bridge. The title was used of pagan Roman priests, and it implies that the holder of the title was the bridge to their god. The title Pontifex Maximus, which belonged to the pagan Roman figurehead, religious figurehead, from the earliest times, and this is that this can be easily corroborated in the history of Livy, for instance, who wrote a history of Rome, and, and several other historians, Diodorus Siculus is another one, who mentions the Pontifex Maximus of Rome all the way back to the 5th century B.C. Well, the title Pontifex Maximus was taken by the emperors for themselves, beginning with Julius Caesar. Priests and church edifices are merely temp church edifices are merely temples. Nuns are merely vestal versions recycled for Catholicism, for Romish Catholicism. Priests, priests are something that are rarely mentioned in connection with Christianity by the earliest church writers. And when they are mentioned, it's in connection, almost always in connection with the Hebrew Old Testament or the Levitical priesthood, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. But on very rare occasion do we see priests mentioned with Christianity. And when they are, I would think, and there are a couple of, at first I thought there were none, there are a couple of occasions, and I would simply translate it holy men and not priests because they're not mentioned in connection with the dispensation of rituals or sacraments. In other words, the idea of a Christian priest really didn't exist 
in the first centuries of Christianity. The priests, the nuns, many of their ceremonies and rituals, along with the colorful costumes and other symbols, are all derived directly from the pagan religions of old Rome. Even Tertullian, in his writing, and he was the bishop of Carthage, he was the, the elected by the people, ecclesiastical leader of Carthage, at the end of the second century AD, 150 years after Paul, Tertullian tells us that the fillet-shaped hat worn, worn, which we see now worn by bishops, was actually originally worn by pagan priests, and he identifies it with them. The canonized so-called saints replaced the pagan Roman pantheon, which included a collection of idols taken out of the nations conquered by Rome. The idea of a patron saint of anything, such as a place or an occupation, that idea comes directly from Greco-Roman paganism, where gods or demons were given those same roles throughout pagan poetry. We see it throughout the poems of Hesiod and Homer and the tragic poets and the elegaic poets and all the others. The College of Cardinals is a shadow of the Roman Senate. Although it was not established until the Middle Ages, the diocesan system is quite like a system of provincial government. Each bishop, the equivalent of a proconsul or a procurator in old Rome. The title cleric, that's an interesting word. The title cleric signifies an allotment holder. The word was derived from the Greek word klerukos, which means, according to Liddell and Scott and their Greek-English lexicon, one who held an allotment of land, especially to citizens in a foreign country. In other words, if you were a citizen of Athens who was appointed land overseas in one of the conquered territories, you were given the title Clerucus, and you held that allotment of land at the grant of the people of Athens. That's how they used the word. And by the very language which is used, the Romish church lays claim to the entire world. When we use those terms in relation to the church, we're basically agreeing with them. Of course, none of this has any support in the New Testament, neither in the Gospels, nor the letters of Paul, nor anywhere else. Studying the epistles of the apostles, a very different picture of the intended church life emerges. Let me explain the word church, because I'm using it, and, and I'm using it because, of course, people, well, we have to have some kind of common language, right? Well, well the word church comes from German, Kirke, which is, I'm probably destroying the pronunciation of that, which is actually derived from the genitive form of the Greek word curious. And, and curious is um, the word Lord, right? Which has, as it's commonly translated in our Bibles. And the genitive form is kuriakos. 
So we see that's where the Germans got Kirka from. Was the gen- and it means of the Lord, of course. So, so that's you know the assembly of of the Lord would be the original use of the term church, and, and that's not necessarily evil, except that the word church in the minds of the people has come to mean the organization and its pomp and its circumstance and its authority, its presumed authority. And, and it doesn't, it, the word has been disconnected from the people. It should never, ever refer to anything but the people themselves. It should never refer to the building. It should never refer to titles or organization. It should never refer to the positions of authority, which that organization assumes for itself. Wherever the word church appears in the standard translations of the New Testament, the Greek word is ecclesia, Strong's number 1577. Difficult to discern from those translations and poisoned by false concepts of the word church, the ecclesia, according to Liddell and Scott, is an assembly of the citizens regularly summoned. The word was a political term in Athens. And throughout the Greek world, the ecclesia were the citizens who had a right to a political voice in the city or in the community, and they were summoned to be called together to take part in the government of that city or community whenever decisions had to be made. That is what ecclesia means, and that's the word purposely chosen to describe the people of God in the Bible. The word does not in any way denote an edifice or any systematized organization with a professional hierarchy. It is rather simply the assembly, the assembly of the children of Israel summoned by God. And there are many passages of Scripture which can be used to demonstrate that. Isaiah chapter 42, 16. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. Matthew 15, 24, John 10, 3, and many others. The body of true Israelite Christians who are either in the world or in any particular community at any given time, depending on the scope of the context. Those people, the children of Israel, who hearken to their God, they are called the ecclesia, whether or not they happen to be currently assembled together, as we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 31, and 1 Corinthians 14, 23. Many people, even in Israel identity, would prefer to translate the word ecclesia from its components, the words ek and the words kaleo, which means to call in Greek, and it means from being called, right, basically. And, and the some people would prefer to translate it the outcalled or the called out ones, and we cannot deem that incorrect. It certainly it would be a correct translation. And it should be what our understanding of the Ecclesia is in the first place. The Geneva Bible 
much better than the King James translated the word as congregation. The Geneva Bible preceded the King James, I think, by about 70 years. Early Christians gathered not to participate in any rigid program of rituals. That's not why they gathered. Scripted and repetitious from week to week. Nor did they gather merely to participate in the Lord's Supper. Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to go eat at home. And the Romish church also made that into a vain ritual. Yahshua Christ himself set the example of communion for us, where he had his communion in a private home at dinner with his loved ones. And Paul tells the Corinthians, don't you have houses to eat and to drink in? We should follow his example. Paul's one recorded example of communion is in Acts chapter 27, verses 33 through 36 which can be compared with Luke 24:30, where praising and offering thanks to Yahweh our God, he broke bread and shared it with his fellows without pomp or ritual. Rather, early Christians, when they gathered, they gathered to learn. The primary teaching instrument was the word, the scriptures, the word of God. Since books were scarce, being at that time very costly to reproduce, they had to gather in order to read the scriptures. And we see examples in Acts chapter 17 and Romans chapters 15 and 16. Paul mentions the scriptures often in his letters. And the record shows that Paul fully expected every Christian to be able to access the scriptures. In Acts chapter 17, and I'll paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, we see that Luke wrote that the men of Beroia were more noble than the men of Thessalonia. That they, rather than simply just arguing, searched the scriptures in order to see if the things which they were told were true. By contrast, the Romish church purposely withheld the scriptures from the common people for many centuries, even putting to death those who dared to translate them from Greek or Latin so that the common people may understand them. Paul would certainly not have approved of such behavior. Until the 1960s, the Romish church ceremony and ritual was always conducted entirely in church Latin, which the great majority of its, of its attendants never understood. A practice which is absolutely contrary to Paul's very own words in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he says at verse 9, Just as also you, unless by means of a language, you would give speech clear to understand, how will one know that which is being spoken. And in verse 19, I'm sorry, indeed you will be speaking into the air. And in verse 19, in the assembly I, meaning Paul, wish to speak five words with my mind in order that I may instruct others also, 
than a myriad of words in a language, meaning a foreign language. The church, the Romish church, would rather speak myriads of words in a foreign language and take your money. In regard to the barring of scripture by the medieval Romish church, Pope Innocent III stated in 1199 A.D., to be reproved are those who translate into French the Gospels, the letters of Paul, the Psalter, etc. They are moved by a certain love of Scripture in order to explain them clandestinely and to preach them to one another. The mysteries of the faith, and this is a Pope, the mysteries of the faith are not to be explained rashly to anyone. Usually, in fact, they cannot be understood by everyone, but only by those who are qualified to understand them with informed intelligence. The death of the divine scriptures is such that not only the illiterate and uninitiated have difficulty understanding them, but also the educated and the gifted. So we see that Pope Innocent III would bar the scriptures from men. And even stronger language than that is found 30 years later at the Council of Toulouse, which met in November of 1229, about the same time of the crusade against the Albigensians, which were a Protestant sect in France. The Council of Toulouse set up a special ecclesiastical tribunal or court known as the Inquisition, from the Latin word inquisitio, which is an inquiry. They set it up to search out and try heretics. Twenty of the 45 articles decreed by the council dealt with heretics and heresy. And it ruled in Canon 14, and I quote, We prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament unless anyone from motive of devotion would wish to have the Psalter or the Breviary for divine offices or the hours of the Blessed Virgin. There we go with Mary worship, also anti-Christian. But we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. So the Council of Toulouse forbid translations of the Bible into the common vernacular quite contrary to the attitudes of Paul and the other apostles. Matthew 16, 18, notwithstanding, nowhere in the New Testament is it mentioned that there is any one head over the assembly, any particular body of Israelite Christians, their only head should be Christ. Let me say in relation to the word pontiff, the pontiffs and the pontifex maximus, which is the title that the Pope took, believe that they are the bridges to God. That's why they took that title. If they didn't believe that, they would have left that title in pagan Rome. Paul says in his epistles that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Yahshua Christ. We don't need priests to communicate with God. We don't need anybody to communicate with God. God knows what we need before we ask for it. 
Matthew 16, 18, notwithstanding, that's the verse where it talks about Peter, and I will, I, I will being the bedrock, right, or, or, or being the stone, and I will get to that soon. Nowhere in the New Testament is it mentioned that there is any one head over the assembly except Yahshua Christ himself. And nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture is it mentioned that any local assembly of Christians would be subject to any other authority. And I would cite Ephesians 5.21. Except the common civil authorities where it was necessary. And that's explained in Romans chapter 13 that we would have to be subject to civil authorities. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Paul's attitude in Romans 13 is entirely corroborated. Paul himself disowned lordship over anyone's faith. And that's what he told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians one twenty four that we, meaning Paul and his co-workers, would not lord over your faith. The popes have always claimed the title Vicarious Filii Dei, which sums up to 666 if we count the value of its letters in the Latin Roman numeral system. Vicarious filii dei means substitute for the Son of God. In contrast, Paul wrote at Galatians 3.28, all you are one in Christ Yahshua. And in Ephesians 5.23, he said, Christ is the head of the assembly, where the verb which he used is the present tense and not the past or the future. Where Paul said at Colossians 1.24, and I quote, Now I rejoice in these sufferings on your behalf, and I substitute for those deficiencies of the afflictions of the anointed with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly. The term anointed is simply another term for the children of Israel. As I have demonstrated in my paper, Yahweh's anointed the children of Israel. Paul never wrote anything about Yahshua Christ needing a substitute. We can't blame Paul because the popes taught to call themselves the substitutes for the Son of God. You won't find that idea in Paul's epistles or in Peter's or anywhere in the New Testament. It should be apparent that dead men need successors as substitutes. Yahshua Christ who Christians should believe, lives, certainly needs no such thing. Live men do not need substitutes. There is no support for popery anywhere in the New Testament, and especially in the letters of Paul. Unless one wants to consider a small number of statements which are disjointed, misinterpreted, and taken out of context to be such support. Concerning Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18, Matthew 16, 18, and the changing of Simon's name to Peter. This was also mentioned, this act is also mentioned in Mark three sixteen, Luke chapter 6, and John chapter 1. 
However, only Matthew's gospel has these statements attributed to Christ at Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Even so, there is no indication that these statements could be an interpolation. Therefore, we have to understand them in context in Greek, and they should not be considered as such. They must, however, be examined more closely. The King James Version translates Matthew 16:18 in part, and I will quote, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The Catholics take that, claim that the Romish church was founded by Peter, and claim that that's their authority to rule over all of Christendom and insist on, quote-unquote, one true church. Those claims are ridiculous. Let me read this, this passage again. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. The Greek word there is Petros. And upon this rock, the Greek word there is Petra, and there's a huge difference. I will build my church. There is a huge distinction between Petros and Petra, which is lost in translation. Liddell and Scott define Petros as a stone, distinguished from Petra. And they define Petra as a rock, a ledge or shelf of rock. Properly, Petra is a fixed rock, and Petros is a stone. Consequently, I would translate, and I have, this part of Matthew 16, 18, you are a stone, Peter, yet upon this bedrock will I build my assembly. Christ is saying something very different than what the Romish church tried to claim he was saying in the 4th century, or I'm sorry, possibly in the 5th. In order to maintain the distinction, while at the same time demonstrating the false claims of the Romish church to be but vanity, it should be translated, you are a stone, and upon this bedrock I will build my church. Even the, the King James rendering of Petrus at John chapter 1, verse 42, indicates the correct meaning of the word, stone, where John gives the Hebrew equivalent spelled kephas, K-E-P-H-A-S, in English, and John gives its Greek meaning. Certainly Peter, as he subsequently became known after Petros for stone, Peter is but a stone and is not the rock upon which Joshua Christ builds his assembly as that is really what's being said in Matthew 16, 18. Even Peter saw this distinction, where in his own epistle, he in turn calls his readers living stones and refers to Yahshua Christ as the chief cornerstone in 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul describes Yahshua Christ as the foundation of his own building, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The authority given to Peter by Yahshua in Matthew chapter 16 was also given to all of the other disciples in Matthew chapter 18. 
these things are inconvenient for Romish Catholicism, and the church likes to really blur them over because it destroys all of their claims concerning their authority, which are all false. The office of Pope, as we know it, was not created until the time of Justinian in the 6th century A.D. It was Justinian who officially decreed, for instance, in his novels, Justinian's novels, section 131, and yes, we have these writings today. We have these writings today because they are important. These writings are important because they became the basis for law throughout Christian Europe for many, many centuries. Justinian and his novels in section 131 decreed that the bishops of Rome would be the ultimate religious authority over all of the Christian assemblies of the empire. This act created the Romish Catholic Church as history has seen it. Until this time, from the days of Constantine, the emperor was the de facto head of all the bishops of all the Christian assemblies, but all the bishops were equals or peers. And history can show us that the other bishops, the non-Roman bishops of the other cities, had resisted attempts by Roman bishops to exert authority over them before the time of Justinian. As early as the 4th century, the ecclesiastical historian Eusebius of Caesarea recorded such attempts by Roman bishops to exert authority over outside assemblies. He recorded a particular instance where Irenaeus, a bishop in Gaul, personally corrected a Roman bishop, Victor, for this very thing. From the enactment of Justinian, the novels, part 131, we read this, and I quote, We order that the most holy pope of ancient Rome shall hold the first rank of all the pontiffs, but the most blessed archbishop of Constantinople, or New Rome, shall occupy the second place after the holy apostolic see of ancient Rome, which shall take precedence over all other sees, all other bishoprics. That created the Romish Pope cult that abides to this day. If we could find authority for the Romish Pope in Scripture, then it would not have needed a law from Justinian, the emperor, to uphold it, because all bishops would have recognized it in Scripture. Of course, that authority did not exist at all, either in Scripture or in reality, until Justinian issued a decree, and the word of the emperor, of course, was the word of, of law. Yet, the Romish Pope cult claims an unbroken chain of succession from Peter and Paul through a line of bishops of Rome down to today and claims its authority from Peter being the rock upon which the Romish Catholic Church is built. We've seen all that is false. An examination of history would reveal that the first claim is a lie. The early bishops of Rome were all martyrs in the persecutions. I think, off the top of my head, I think it was 16 or 18 of the first 20 Roman Christian Bishops were martyred. 
Most later bishops were mere political opportunists. An examination of scripture, including Paul's epistles, reveals that the second claim is also a lie. In reality, the Romish church is built upon the bones of the saints, both figuratively, as we see in Daniel 7.25, or in the Revelation at 6.9 or 12.17, in Scripture, and literally. The cult's foremost temple, which is called St. Peter's Basilica, is actually built, as archaeologists have recently discovered, upon a large necropolis. Yes, the Christian, the, the Romish Catholic Church is built upon the bones of Christian saints. That's explained in Archaeology Odyssey in the March-April 2001 issue in an article called City of the Dead. And there are many other articles in archaeology journals which have been written that show that St. Peter's Basilica is built literally on the bones of the early Christian martyrs. And figuratively, from the scripture, Daniel 7, Revelation 6, it's right there. It's poetic. From the Edicts of Justinian, and armed with the forged so-called Donation of Constantine, and it was a forgery, the Romish Church gained dominion over all the Christian assemblies of the Oikumene, which is the Adamic world, and it persecuted all those who refused to prostrate themselves before it, such as the Albigenses in the 13th century, the Waldenses, and the Celtic Church of the British Isles. The Celtic Church of the British Isles existed long before the Roman Church was legitimized, and that was recognized by early councils and Roman authorities. I'm sorry I don't have citations at hand. The Romish Church has been nothing but a tool for the dragon, the international Jew, in his war against the woman, which is true Israel. Paul did not write to the popish one true church at Rome. Paul wrote to all those in Rome who were beloved of Yahweh called saints, Romans chapter 1 verse 7, who were actually distributed among several different assemblies or churches, as we see in Romans 16.5, as they were in other places also, such as Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8.1, and Galatians, Galatia, in the epistle of Galatians, in chapter 1, verse 2. Nowhere did Paul recognize any single leader of these various Roman Christian assemblies. In the Revelation, Yahshua Christ sent a message to seven different assemblies, all of them independent and not to one true church, Revelation 1.11. And Rome was not even considered among these seven. How could even the enemies of popery or churchianity possibly blame the Romish Catholic beast on Paul. Here it shall be endeavored to examine precisely what Paul did say in regard to the organization of the assemblies to which he wrote. Hopefully then it may be realized that Paul cannot, in honesty, be blamed 
to the Romish Catholic Church behemoth, which certainly was the second beast of the Revelation, and a creation of imperial Rome, not a creation of the early Christians. Paul was reckoned as an apostolus, apostle, which is a messenger, an ambassador, or an envoy, according to Liddell and Scott. In spite of his modern critics, there is no indication that the original 11 apostles ever denied Paul this title, but rather they respected him as such, as we see in Acts chapter 15 and 2 Peter chapter 3. Neither Peter nor Paul were ever recorded in Scripture, even any time before the 4th century A.D., as having accepted any other title than apostle, which is not even a title. Instead, it's merely a description of a function. It's not an office of pomp and circumstances we may see such offices, ecclesiastical offices today. Once the lost nations of Israel received the gospel, there was no longer a need for such an office as apostle, and no successor apostles were ever appointed. The function was no longer necessary. Yet Paul also counted himself as a mere servant the word diaconus, often translated minister, and he calls himself a servant, a diaconus, quite often, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians 3, 7, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Even though Paul's unique concern as an apostle was for all of the assemblies, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, many of which the record shows that he himself founded, Paul had no subordinates. He only had colleagues. He uses that word, colleagues, quite often, and he's never claimed a subordinate in any of his epistles. Romans chapter 16, three times. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 6. Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about colleagues on those and many other occasions. And partners. Sometimes he calls his colleagues partners. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Philemon, verse 17. The Greek word, soon ergus, which is often translated colleague or fellow worker in the King James Version, is a working together, a joining or helping in work, or a fellow workman when it appears as a noun. The King James rendered it helper, at Romans 16.3, but more correctly, fellow laborer, at Philippians 4.3 and elsewhere. Helper may imply subordination to some, but the Greek word sunergos does not imply subordination. It is therefore evident that Paul was very careful not to take titles of authority for himself. No formal ceremony was found in his behavior. Certainly, Paul did not think well of self-promotion, as we see in Philippians 2.3 and Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. 
He always wrote in the spirit of the words of Yahshua Christ, such as what we see in Luke 13.30 and Luke 22, verses 26 and 27. And I will quote Luke 13.30, And behold, those who were the first, who are the last, shall be first, but those who were first shall be last. And I will quote Luke 22, verses 26 and 27. The kings of the nations rule over them, and those having authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not so with you. Rather, he who is greater among you must be as the inferior, and he who is a leader must be as the servant. For who is greater, he dining or he serving? Is it not he who is dining, but I in the midst of you am as he serving, meaning Christ, his words. So we should be servants to one another. That was Paul's mentality. That was Paul's attitude all throughout all of his epistles, all throughout his entire ministry. Ministry. Evidently, individual members of an assembly communicated with Paul directly. He wasn't above that. He didn't elevate himself. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. And Paul's letters were written to be read to the entire assembly, not being merely summarized or interpreted by some priest, but read in full, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, or in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. That's what Paul expected. He even expected them to read his epistles when they could, to other assemblies besides those who were initially addressed, as we see in Colossians 4.16, which surely also encouraged the copying and the distribution of those letters. Paul probably wrote many more epistles than those which we now possess. And the ones which we have themselves indicate that other letters are missing. And, and we have record of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, and in Colossians 4, 16. While Paul and his ministry had allocated resources, both human, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and monetary, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul coerced no one, as we see in 1 Corinthians 16, 12. His service to the saints at Jerusalem which is very abused by mainstream churches. Paul's service to the saints of Jerusalem must be understood in the context of the social climate there at the time. And it does not provide a reason or an excuse to beg support for missionary work in foreign lands to alien peoples, as we so often witness in this age. Paul's service to the saints at Jerusalem, his collection for the Christians at Jerusalem, was conducted because the Christians at Jerusalem couldn't leave their houses. They were being hounded and persecuted by the Jews. They couldn't even work if they wanted to. And we see in the history of Josephus and, and elsewhere that all of those Christians at Jerusalem were eventually slain if they didn't escape. The example Paul set for himself was to work for his wages in order to support himself whenever he could. 
We see that in Acts chapter 18 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He also recommended others to do that several times in the epistles to the Thessalonians and in Timothy. Nevertheless, Paul did have assistance from the assemblies and mentioned that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But Paul left no model for a professional priesthood which lived off of the fat of the community like parasites, which we see in the Roman church and all of its offspring and to which we can compare Matthew twenty three fourteen, where Christ accused the Pharisees of robbing the houses of widows and living like parasites off the people. Mark twelve forty, Luke twenty forty seven. We see the Romish church and all of its offspring live off of the communities like parasites. They expect their living from the communities. That was not Paul's attitude. There is not even one mention of any word which means priest in connection with the New Covenant Assembly in any of Paul's writings. There are no Christian priests. We are all priests in Christianity because a priest The Greek idea of a priest is somebody who performs a service for God. Our God expects us to keep his basic commandments and to love each other. And if we do that, we're priests to our God, taking care of our white brethren. Only the most ignorant and unjust men could blame Paul for that monster which the Romish church became or for modern Judeo-churchianity since these things are certainly not found in any of Paul's instructions. The word priest in connection with the New Covenant is very rare in the early writings of Christianity and it is not at all used in connection with sacraments or rituals. But after the Council of Nicaea, the word priest in connection with Christianity became very common 300 years after the mission of Paul. We sure as hell can't blame him for that. What the early Catholic Church did was it paganized Christianity. The way I see it, thousands of pagan priests not being able to resist Christianity, they took down the signs that said Temple of Apollo or Temple of Mars, and they put up signs that said St. Peter, St. Luke, St. Paul. They didn't change any of their practices, but they called themselves Christian because they changed the signs. That might be a little exaggeration, but it's not far from the truth. Here we have mentioned some of the various ecclesiae, assemblies, which Paul wrote to. Paul founded Christian assemblies throughout the cities of the Greco-Roman world, as records in the Acts and in his epistles attest. Note that Paul did not found the assemblies at Rome, which he wrote to before ever visiting. 
that the assemblies which Paul founded in Anatolia were valid Christian assemblies is verified both by Peter, who also wrote to them, 1 Peter chapter 1, and also by Yahshua Christ himself in the Revelation in the first three chapters. And he addressed and even commended some of those assemblies that Paul founded. So anyone who questions the validity of Paul's work also questions the validity of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and the Revelation, and only a fool could do such a thing. And hence, all Paul bashers of their own volition make themselves fools. They also would necessitate the dismissal, if it's examined, of Luke and of the Acts. Paul left no successors, as the Romish church claims, and unlike Romish pope succession. And Paul warned the assemblies that they were on their own after his final departure. This is clearly illustrated at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Here Paul tells the leaders of the assemblies gathered to him that they themselves are overseers. And that word is episcopus. And it is the word from which the English bishop comes after a few perturbations in, in Latin and English. Paul called the elders of the assemblies that gathered to him that they themselves were overseers or bishops of the, the assembly of God and no one else. Anyone who reads this account in Acts and then blames Paul for popery and for the Romish church feast is terribly foolish. And I would bet most Paul bashers really haven't read the Bible. Since Paul himself would not rule over the assemblies of Christ, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.24, surely neither would Paul recommend that anyone else do so, except Christ himself, for whom Paul attests there is no substitute. And I would cite 1 Corinthians 11.3, Ephesians 1.22, Colossians 1.18, and several other scriptures to prove that. So it is evident that Paul left behind him a collection of independent, autonomous Christian assemblies. That's the model. That's the proper New Testament model, which both Peter and Yahshua Christ also recognized and acknowledged in their epistles and in the Revelation. Now, the internal structure of the local assembly from the epistles of Paul and elsewhere in the New Testament shall be examined, beginning with a compilation of terms used to describe governance within the assembly or Christian community. The usage of these terms outlined here can be verified with the Strong's Concordance. The first term is episcopus or episcopus depending on how you want to stress the word. Liddell and Scott stress it on the I, episcopus. Episcopus is a noun. And the very word from which the English word bishop is derived, it came to English from the vulgar Latin, episcopus, and in medieval English, 
Bistiop. I don't know how to pronounce that one, but it's B-I-S-C-E-O-P-E. Very close in spelling to Episcopus. Episcopus appears five times in the New Testament. And in the King James, it was translated only once at Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as overseers in the plural. That would be a proper literal translation. Otherwise, it appears as the borrowed church word, bishop. And we see it in Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.7, and 1 Peter 2.25. And episcopus is properly, according to Liddell and Scott, one who watches over, an overseer, a guardian, a public officer, an intendant. The related noun, episcope, is a watching over or a vegeta- visitation, the office of an episcopus or generally just an office. In the King James, episcope is the office of a bishop, as it's translated at 1 Timothy 3.1. It's a bishopric at Acts 1.20. And it's a visitation at Luke 19.44 or 1 Peter 2.12 in those contexts. The related verbs, episcopio and episkeptomahi, episcopio is, in the King James, translated looking diligently as a participle in Hebrews 12.15 and taking the oversight in 1 Peter 5.2. Episkeptomahi is, in the AV, to look out and to visit. In my own translations, I've rendered the word episcopus either overseer or supervisor. The word episcope is either office or, more fully, the office of a supervisor. I avoided the word bishop, which is not a translation but instead it's a borrowed word interjected into our language for devious church purposes. So I have avoided it. The, um, the King James Version of the Bible, when it was translated, the translators received instructions. Among their instructions were to translate certain words so that the authority of the Anglican Church, which was relatively new at the time, would be upheld. So they wouldn't translate certain words literally, like the Geneva Bible did, which was earlier. The Geneva Bible took the word ecclesia and literally translated it congregation. The King James translated it church and applied the word church to the Anglican organization and structure as to uphold Anglican authority, ecclesiastical authority. So the King James has a lot of dishonest devices in a lot of these translations of these words. The word presbyterus from which we get Presbyterian and Presbyter. Presbyterus is the comparative form of presbus, which is an old man, an elder, and appears over 60 times in the New Testament. 
usually in the King James, it is elders. Presbyterion is a council of elders. The King James renders Presbyterion as elders in Luke 22.66 and as a state of the elders in Acts chapter 22. However, in 1 Timothy 4.14, they translated it, or they didn't translate it. They borrowed a word from Greek and called it presbytery. They just changed the word to make it fit their church organization. The word diaconus is a noun. It means a servant or a waiting man, in Latin a minister. And it appears 30 times in the New Testament in transliteration. It is the source of the borrowed word deacon, which is only a church word. It's not a real word. Diaconus is deacon. It's a transliteration. In the King James, it's 20 times minister and 7 times servant. Either of these translations are acceptable to me so long as the term minister is understood in its Latin sense to mean a servant and not as someone in a position of authority. The Greek meaning of the word surely does not bear that. It's a servant. On three occasions, the King James Version renders the word deacon in Philippians and twice in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That translation is not acceptable. Those renderings manipulate the word as to somehow support the artificial structure of the organized Anglican Church. The related noun diaconia is the office of a diaconus. It's a service. It's an attendance on a duty. It's administration. It appears 34 times in the New Testament. The King James has rendered the word administration twice. To minister is a verb, for some strange reason, once, ministering three times, ministry or ministration, 22 times. It's also rendered it as relief or service or serving or office. The verb, diakoneo, is to minister, to serve, or to do service. To furnish or supply, it appears in the New Testament 37 times. Twice, the King James rendered it to administer, 10 times to serve, and 23 times to minister. And all of these are acceptable as long as one understands the word minister as a verb in the sense of performing a service to the assembly or for the assembly and not ruling over it, a perception which the Greek word never supported or conveyed. Yet, like diaconus, the King James Version rendered the verb diaconeo as to be a deacon twice in 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 10 and 13. It's odd that where Paul gave instructions to Timothy as to how to operate his assembly, how the assembly should operate, I should say, that that is where the King James Version of the Bible most often mistranslates these words. That's not a mistake. 
they set up a structure that a Christian assembly really shouldn't have and manipulated the meanings of the words as if to support their pretense of authority. In my own translations, diaconus is usually servant, but nearly as often it's minister in the sense of a servant. Diaconio is usually to serve, but nearly as often it's to minister. And diaconia is most often a service and varies in various contexts. It must be mentioned that in the King James Version of the Bible, a diverse group of 12 other Greek words have, on a total of 28 occasions, been rendered to minister or similar renderings. Yet none of these should be taken to imply the holding of any office or position within the assembly, and so therefore I won't discuss them further. Now that the basic terms describing offices within an organized Christian assembly have been defined, where we see presbyterus and elder, episcopus and overseer, and diaconus, a minister or a servant, and the manner in which the King James has treated those words has been observed, their application in the New Testament may be discussed. Once the meaning of one more Greek word has been examined, and that one more Greek word is the word chirotonio. Chirotonio, Strong's number 5500, is a verb, and it only appears twice in the New Testament. However, it's a very important word because its interpretation determines whether a Christian assembly should select its own leaders and thereby remain autonomous. Or whether some outside supposed authority selects those leaders, where the assembly then becomes subject to that supposed authority. So the pretense of authority that the churches claim to have over the people, the organized religions claim to have over the people, hangs on one word and its definition. Liddell and Scott. I love using the Liddell and Scott lexicon because it's a more or less secular lexicon, right? It, it, it was the de facto standard Greek lexicon throughout the English-speaking world for approximately 70 years, from the 1880s until the 1950s. It's based on a, on a larger, older German work. Forgive me for forgetting the name right now. It was the lexicon referred to as the authority by all the great Greek scholars of the early 20th century, like those who, who had um, translated Harvard's Loeb Library, which was a translation of hundreds and hundreds of Greek and Roman classics into English, conducted in the first part of the, 19th, of the 20th century, mostly by British scholars. 
Ludell and Scott, it was published by Oxford, and it has been for a long time, and it hasn't been tampered with too badly over the years. I have two of them. I have an abridged volume based on the seventh edition, and I have the large ninth edition. I like Liddell and Scott because Liddell and Scott, they, they claim that they tell you how words were translated in the New Testament by the Anglican Church, and they don't argue with them too much, but they also tell you how the words were used in all the secular writers, and that's what's important. Because, like Paul said, he'd rather speak five words with his mind so that the assembly could understand him than speak a myriad of words in a tongue. It's much better that I speak a few words that make sense to the common people than speak a bunch of church words and leave people scratching their heads at what I meant, which is the practice of organized religion for many centuries now. That's why I like the Liddell and Scott lexicon and not all of these church or New Testament lexicons that are laced with church doctrine and don't really care how common Greeks actually use the words. Well, Paul was speaking in common Greek. That's why it's called coin Greek. Coin means common. Common so that everybody could understand it. Chirotonio is defined by Liddell and Scott to stretch out the hand. Well, a kairos in Greek is a hand, and tonio is a verb, which means to stretch. So that is pretty con much common sense. Liddell and Scott say, to stretch out the hand for the purpose of voting, to vote for, to elect properly by a show of hands. In the passive voice, the word was used to mean to be elected or election. Now, the Greeks use this word as opposed to another verb, lakine which is the infinitive form of lagcano, which means appointment by lot. So there were two ways that the Greeks would vote on something or, or would select something, I should say. They would either vote or they would draw lots. And we see chirotonio is opposed to the word which means to draw lots, which is like cano, right? This definition I derived from the seventh edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon. The ninth edition does add the definition a point. The seventh edition does not have that definition. Yet, the ninth edition also tells us that that's the way the New Testament translated the word. And the ninth edition of Liddell and Scott do not offer any secular Greek authority and admit that only the New Testament and the King James Version would translate Chirotonio as a point. In every secular Greek writing where the word appears, it meant an election. It meant to elect. When I came to translate the New Testament, I translated the word 
the way every secular Greek writer used it. Because there are other Greek words that mean a point. Chirotonio does not mean a point. It means to elect. Period. The King James rendering of Acts 14.23 says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. That translation contains several errors, and I won't review them all here at length. But my own translation of Acts 14.23 says, And elders being elected by them in each assembly, praying with fasting, they presented them in whom they had confidence with the authority. That's what the verse says. I can argue every word of the Greek and prove my translation. But the big point is whether Chirotonio is ordained or elected. Well, the word means to stretch out the hand. And there's a hell of a lot of other Greek words that mean ordained or appointed. So I have to read that as elected. The second occurrence of Chirotonio in the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians 8.19, a verse which is rendered in part by the King James Version. And not only that, but who has also chosen of the churches to travel with us in disgrace. The language is quite ambiguous. From my own edition of Paul's epistles, the same pericope, a pericope is a section of the writing, right? The same pericope reads, and not only, but our fellow traveler has also been handpicked by the assemblies to be endued with his favor. And handpicked may just as well have been elected. But the important thing was that he was chosen by the assemblies. The assemblies chose who was going to represent them in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 by traveling to Jerusalem with Paul to present their gift to the needy. Paul himself did not make the choice. The assemblies chose him, and they chose him by election. This is even more evident reading the previous verse, which I have read, and we have sent along him that brother of whom there is approval and the good message throughout all of the assemblies. Well, their approval was manifested when they elected that man to that position. So this one word, Chirotonio, and how we understand it and how plainly it means to vote for, on that one word hinges the authority of these bishoprics which believe they should rule over other Christians because Christian assemblies are clearly to choose their own leaders. That's what the scripture says. There are many Greek words which may be rendered appointed, chosen, or ordained in English. The use of Chirotonio by Luke and Paul in these two passages, Acts 14 and 2 Corinthians 8, very clearly shows in both context and definition, that the leaders and servants of a Christian assembly should be elected by that assembly. 
The assembly chooses its own leaders. No one sets leaders over them as the so-called churches do today. And there is no other passage in the New Testament which gives credence to such an idea. The Romish church built its authority upon the decrees of Justinian and upon its own false claims, and the ignorant masses were led to believe them, just as so many still do today. Only the most foolish of men could blame this on Paul of Tarsus. The definitions of the word used in the New Testament given previously, in those definitions we have seen what appears to be two positions of authority within the Christian assembly. These are episcopus, which is an overseer or a supervisor, and presbyteros, which is an elder. That these are legitimate positions within the assembly is found not only because Paul uses the terms in such a context, but Peter and James and John all do likewise, so it shouldn't be disputed. And their doing so verifies many of Paul's statements for us. And we could see 1 Peter chapter 5, James chapter 5, or Revelation chapter 4. That these two offices are actually one and the same is fully evident from the discourse in Acts chapter 20, in verses 17 and 28, and in Titus 1, 5, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and 1 Peter chapter 5. Where the King James also has ordained at Titus 1, 5, the Greek word is kathistaini, and it may be ordain or appoint, but it also means to establish. Titus was to establish elders in the assemblies, and that's done as we've seen in Acts chapter 14, by voting. The assembly votes for its elders. That's how they are established. Peter discusses the role of an elder at 1 Peter chapter 5, where he states that they should lead by example. He states that they should not lord or be dictators over the assembly. So much for medieval bishops. Likewise, Paul discusses the role of the supervisor at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we see that elder and supervisor are one and the same role. And Joseph Thayer, another lexicographer, he wrote a Thayer's lexicon, and, and in some places it's very good. Joseph Thayer discusses at length in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament under the word presbyteros. And he says, quote, that they did not at all differ from the episcopoi, or bishops or overseers, is evident from the fact that the two words are used indiscriminately with several New Testament passages, and he's correct, Acts chapter 20, Titus chapter 1, and that the duty of presbyters or elders is described by the terms episcopine to oversee, and episcope, the office of, an, of a bishop, the office of an episcopus. So accordingly, there are only two ecclesiastical officers, the episcopoi, or overseers, and the diaconoi, or ministers, servants, the, presby, the, the presbyterus being the same as the episcopus. And Thayer proves that from the scripture. So we see that an overseer or supervisor and an elder are one and the same office in the Christian New Testament. 
And we have seen that the men of the assembly are elected to this office by the assembly. As previously discussed, referring to Acts chapter 14 and the verb kairotonio, which means to vote for or to elect. From the instructions given by Paul in 1 Timothy chapters 3 and 5 and elsewhere, it's even evident that an assembly, if it warrants it, may have more than one elder or overseer at any given time. It's also evident that the assembly should consider men who have, at one time or another, served in the capacity of a teacher of scripture, which is generally a function fulfilled by a servant or minister when filling a position of elder, as Paul instructs in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. The elder is a leader of and an example to the assembly, but not its lord or ruler as we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 5. Yahshua Christ is the one and only head or ruler over one and all in every Christian assembly. There are many citations from Paul's own letters that tell us that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Ephesians chapters 1, 4, and 5, Colossians 1, 18. There is no prescription for popery in the New Testament, and especially in the letters of Paul. In the temporary absence of Christ, Scripture is the only valid authority. We see that in Acts chapter 17 and 18, in Romans chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapters 11 and 14, 2 Peter chapter 3, and many other places in Paul's epistles. Scripture is the only valid authority over a Christian assembly. As we have also seen Thayer agree, the only other office in the Christian assembly, besides an overseer who was elected by the people, is a diaconus, a minister, or a servant. From the definition of diaconus, we have seen that a minister, a servant, and a deacon in the King James Version of the Bible, are really all one and the same word. Paul discusses the qualifications of these ministers at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Paul's instructions disqualify every single Romish Catholic cardinal, bishop, or priest. All of them are disqualified from being valid servants of the assembly of God. Why? Because Paul has told us that a minister should be a husband of one wife and bear faithful children, raise faithful children. And Paul tells us that if they can't manage their own household well, how could they possibly serve the assembly of God? And I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the scripture with me. In other words, if you haven't raised a family, you have no right being appointed any office where you might have authority over the children of God because you haven't raised your own family. You have no experience 
And we have all these Catholic priests out molesting little boys because the Catholic priesthood will only take men who don't want to get married and have families in the first place. Absolutely 100%, 180 degrees contrary to the scripture and to the instructions which Paul left behind. Any person at any time may serve as a diaconist, a minister or a servant, to a Christian assembly. It can even be done voluntarily, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Otherwise, as we've seen, the assembly chooses its ministers. They aren't appointed over the assembly. They're elected. They're chosen by the people of the assembly. The Catholic Church imposes bishops and priests upon communities, contrary to the model left behind by the apostles. There's no scriptural authority for it. These ministers may be teachers or messengers, envoys, caretakers of the elderly, or any other capacity which the community of Christians may require or even desire. Ephesians chapter 4 lists some of the functions which a minister may be chosen to perform, and there are other functions evident elsewhere. Acts chapter 6, they were chosen. And, and in Acts chapter 6, the apostles told the people to elect for themselves servants to see after the widows and elderly. Right in Acts chapter 6, we see the model for how a Christian assembly should choose its servants. The apostles didn't appoint them. They didn't force anybody on the people. They expected the people to choose their own leaders. We also see this in Romans chapter 16, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and 1 Peter chapter 4. So a minister is someone who serves the assembly and a certain task, or even multiple tasks, depending on his or her abilities. A minister or a servant to the assembly is never an authority figure, and surely his or her work must be monitored by the overseers. That's the episcopus. That's why he's chosen by the people, to monitor over the ministers and servants who are chosen for various tasks. Various gifts beneficial to the assembly are discussed in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. At Romans 12, 7, diaconia, which is a ministering or an administration, is listed as one of these gifts. And there are other scriptures which support that, which reinforces the notion that any member of the assembly, and not just a selected minister, may share his gifts, insights, or abilities with the assembly. There is no supreme authority except the Bible and Christ in Christianity. Yet men have sought to rule over each other from the beginning. While women may also serve the assembly in certain capacities, and women were chosen by Paul and counted as colleagues and as fellow workers, they are, by Christian doctrine, not to speak in a teaching capacity to the assembly, 
And I would say that when women are raised up for that purpose by God, it's a reproach to the men because they're not doing their jobs. And we see that in the Old Testament quite often, like in the story of Deborah and Barak. Deborah the prophetess was raised up to lead the children of Israel because the men were slothful and didn't care. All men of age, 20 years and older, Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, in a Christian community are equals with a certain amount of deference given to those who are older than us, who are upright members of the community. As we have seen, an elder or an overseer is not a lord or a boss, but a leader who teaches by example. The verb rendered to rule in the King James in Romans 12, 8, and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 in relation to elders and, and overseers, is proestemi. That verb does not mean to rule. It means to lead, preside, direct, manage, govern, etc. Most literally, it means to stand before. There are other Greek words which mean to rule over. And proestemi does not mean to rule in that context. The organized church would have it of their appointed bishops, of course. But Paul would certainly not recommend it. Proestemi means to go before, to stand before, to lead or to guide, which we would expect of an elder. But we do not rule over the faith of our brethren. We don't seek to rule over our brethren at all. We have also seen that a minister is not an authority figure, but a servant. A minister is not a preacher, but he may be a teacher or a proclaimer of the word, or an administrator of some other task which serves the assembly. Christ, again, is the only authority, and by extension, his word in Scripture, New Testament and Old. All matters of difference should be brought before the assembly and should be judged in accordance with the Scripture. One important difference from the Old Testament judges era model is explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because Christians no longer have civil authority. Those who have erred terribly should be excluded from the community rather than being stoned or condemned, and God will see that they are judged. The above advice given by Paul at 2 Thessalonians 3.14, 1 Timothy 6.3, and Titus 3.10 on how we are to settle our matters amongst each other must be applied to every and any member of the assembly, including ministers and elders or overseers. And therefore, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, we see that Paul allows for an impeachment process of those officers who go astray. None of us are above judgment. None of us are above criticism. This must necessarily be conducted before the assembly, which itself would decide the issue. Officers elected by a Christian assembly must therefore be answerable 
only to the assembly. My own translation of 1 Timothy 5.19 reads thusly, An accusation against an elder you must not receive publicly except by two or three witnesses. And the main difference with the King James is the Greek word ektos, which the King James ignores, which means outside or publicly in my rendering. Paul's admonishment, where he cites Deuteronomy 19.15, two or three witnesses, should stand for both elders and for any other member of the assembly. We should be fair in our judgment, but everybody is liable to judgment when they've screwed up. Priests that molest little boys shouldn't be let off the hook. The Christian assembly, being autonomous and answering to no other authority, no other authority except the scripture, must therefore assume responsibility for itself and not turn to secular authorities to fulfill its needs. That has gotten us into the greatest trouble. Those who look to the governments of man to solve their problems invite the government to become involved in every facet of their lives. The government becomes their god. One can deny the veracity of such a broad statement, yet this is the very dilemma which we in America suffer today. The Christian assembly should provide for its own members and resolve its own social problems. Such is clear in the examples which we see under the Roman Empire. We see these same examples in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In chapter 6 of Acts, when the apostles recommended that men be selected to serve the assembly by managing a particular necessity, the people chose the men and not the apostles. This example, as those given here previously, show again that the people of the assembly choose their own leaders and ministers. Not even Peter, James, or John would dictate by appointing men over the assembly. Why should any organized church at the time of the apostles or sense or even in the identity assemblies of today, assume that they have a right to do otherwise. The Catholic Church never had such authority. Not from Scripture, only from force and the edicts of the imperial government and Justinian's novels. The Catholic, the Romish Catholic Church really got their authority from imperial Rome not from Scripture. Paul certainly wouldn't have granted them these rights, as we've already observed. He expected the people of the assembly to govern themselves. That's the foundation that this country, the United States of America, was built on. Self-government. Not government by a tyrant, a tyrannical king, not government by a church, a tyrannical pope, but self-government, where people look after their own interests and then they keep their freedom.
The Christian assembly, providing duties of community to its own members, the members must only look to the assembly for those services. This is explained by Paul concerning matters of justice in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, chapters poorly translated in the King James Version. Since the secular authorities disdain the laws of Yahweh, they cannot judge righteously, nor can they provide for community righteously, and should therefore be avoided by Christians. I will read my own translation of 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. What is it to me to judge those outside? Not at all should you judge those among you or within you, but those outside, Yahweh judges. You will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. The Christian assembly must expel wrongdoers and not condemn them. We don't have that right anymore, even though we would like to have it. Trusting that Yahweh himself will see to it that they are treated in accordance with their deeds. My own translation of 1 Corinthians verses 6, chapter 6 verses 1 through 11 read in this manner, speaking about civil claims against one another. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, have it decided before the unrighteous, think of a Jewish judge, and not before the saints, each other. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if by you the world is judged, are you unworthy of the smallest trials, the silly differences we have with other Christians? Do you not know that we will judge angels or messengers, let alone the things of this life, so then if you should have trial of things pertaining to this life, those who esteem themselves least in the assembly, those will be set to judge. In other words, you pick out the humblest people among you and set them up to be your judges. I speak from respect to you, so there is there not among you even one who is wise who would be able to judge among his brethren, but brother is brought to, brought to trial by brother. In, in the days of, of, of Paul, in the days of Christ, in classical Greece and in Rome, judges of each city sat in the marketplaces and people would bring each other before those judges when they had issues. And, of course, they were the most ungodly men and usually operated on bribes. Brother is brought, brought to trial by brother, and this before those who are not believing, before anti-Christians or non-Christians. So then already there is altogether discomfiture among you, seeing that you have matters for judgment among yourselves. Why would you not still more be wronged? Go to a Jewish judge and you'll get screwed even worse. Why would you not still more de be defrauded? You would rather do wrong and defraud in this of a brother. Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor, nor railers. I'm tripping over myself, I'm sorry. Nor the rapacious shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have been deemed fit. In the name of Prince Yahshua Christ and in the spirit of our God. In other words, we're to cleanse ourselves of the world and worry about ourselves and seek our God and seek the justice and judgment of our God. We don't take each other into 
Hedon courts and expect justice. We'll never get justice from a Jewish court. And if you don't think our courts are Jewish, look at the names of all the judges. They are all antichrists. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul tells the assembly not to sue for justice before the unrighteous or non-Christian secular authorities. In verses 2 and 3, Paul tells the assembly that the saints, Israelites who have accepted the gospel and have returned to God, separating themselves from the evils of the world and from the unrighteous people, shall judge the world, a damaged society. And so they certainly should be able to settle their own matters among themselves. In verse 4, Paul advises that they select those who esteem themselves the least, men who are of a humble disposition in order to judge such matters. In verses 5 and 6, Paul expressed shock and disbelief that no one among the assembly would be able to judge such matters. Of course we can. We should not rely on the secular, ungodly government. We know it's a tyranny. In verses 7 and 8, he continues to admonish them for having such problems among themselves at all and warns that if they went to secular authorities, they would still be, that they would be wronged even further. And just think of all the Jews and Manzers and assorted other heathens who sit as judges in America today. Not one of them could ever be righteous before God. The local ecclesia the assembly or the Christian community should answer to no authority except the word and should avoid the secular world altogether or as much as we can except to seek to pull our brethren out of it. There is no basis for a single one world command structure such as the Romish Catholic Church is organized anywhere in scripture. Paul certainly never recommended such a thing. For this reason, and much of what follows is my own opinion, I believe that much latitude is given to the local assembly to organize and to regulate itself based upon its own custom and economic status. I would think that the number of supervisors elected, the number of ministers, whether or not compensation is granted for time spent in service to the community, or if any of these positions are full-time or part-time, meaning those people are expected to work, their own, for their own livelihoods. All those things are dependent upon the size and the economic status and the desire of each particular assembly. The assembly itself should decide the authority of its elders, the powers delegated to them, the functions of its ministers, and any other manner of government. All these things are left open to individual Christian assemblies. because the children of Israel have not yet been fully restored from their state of punishment. We're in a position where we must obey secular authorities. And we see that in Romans 13, in 1 Peter chapter 2, in Matthew chapter 22, in Mark chapter 12, in Luke chapter 20, and in John 19.11. But we never place those secular authorities before our God. We obey him first, Acts 5.29.
Surely it may sound as if the function of the Christian assembly is democratic. But this is certainly not the case, since the governing authority, or constitution, if you'll have it, is the Bible. And therefore, the will of the masses is restricted by the word of God. Very much like the American Republic was to operate, was supposed to operate, when people actually knew what the hell the Constitution said. The Assembly has no authority to disobey or circumvent the Word of God for any reason. Our elder or overseer or minister or servant, full-time positions. Should these officers receive compensation from the assembly, living off the goodwill of the assembly? Such need not be encouraged, but it is not unlawful. And I would cite Romans 15.27 and 1 Corinthians 9, 1-18, where Paul also explains why he did not marry, that he need not have lived in poverty, both contrary to Romish church dogma. The example which Paul made was to preach the gospel without burdening the assembly, without cost to the hearers. There are many citations to show that. And also to work at labor to support himself, although he did receive much help from certain assemblies. He recommended to his followers that they follow his example. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, 2 Thessalonians 3.9-12, and 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 9, 1-18, why he and Barnabas chose not to marry. He instructs that elders and ministers of the Christian assembly not only should be married, but they must be married. This is not hypocritical on Paul's part. It has been previously explained here that the office of apostle was quite unique. It required much travel from those who held it, and those people endured much hardship. All of the apostles were very young when they were selected, including Paul, which we can tell from Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And evidently, at least several of them put their mission ahead of the prospects of marriage. Traveling with a family in these times would impose a great burden and expense on a man. Paul traveled for nearly 30 years. Neither could a mere laborer, and Paul was a tent maker, both afford to travel and support a family with a home. To properly conduct the office of apostle in a simple Christian lifestyle, having a family along would be greatly inhibited. Inhibitive. The King James Version usually translated the imperative form of Greek verbs as let rather than must. My own translation of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, reads as follows. Trustworthy is this saying. If anyone strives for an office of supervisor, he is desirous of good work. Therefore, it is necessary for that supervisor, or bishop, to be irreproachable, a husband of one wife, sober, discreet, orderly, hospitable, inclined to teach, not a drunkard, not a brawler, but reasonable, not contentious, not loving money, Governing his own house well, having children in subjection with all reverence. No Catholic priest has done that in a thousand years. 
Now, if one does not know to govern his own house, how could he care for an assembly of Yahweh? Or how would he care for an assembly of Yahweh? Depending on how you want to translate the subjunctive voice. Moved, I'm sorry. Not a neophyte, lest blinded with pride, he would fall into condemnation of the devil or false accuser. Now it is necessary to have a good accreditation from those outside, lest he fall into a reproach and a trap of the false accuser or devil. In like manner, reverend ministers, servants, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. Yet, you know, when I was a kid, the priest would. The priests where I went to Catholic school always looked like they were drunk the night before. But even they must be scrutinized first, then being void of offense they must minister. Likewise, reverent wives, not slanderous, sober, trustworthy in all, ministers, meaning servants of the assembly, must be husbands of one wife, governing their children and their own house as well. For they that are ministering well obtain for themselves a good degree and much liberty and faith, which is in Christ Yahshua. Again, it must be mentioned, these remarks by Paul alone disqualify nearly, if not every, Roman Catholic pope, cardinal, bishop, or priest from service to the true assemblies of God, and they disqualify many of those belonging to the Protestant sects as well. Only an ignorant, blasphemous, self-serving man could possibly blame Paul of Tarsus for the organized religious sects, since Paul himself refutes them at every turn. There is no prescription in Paul's letters for popes, cardinals, or priests. All references to priests in Paul's letters are in the context of the Old Old Covenant, where the performance of prescribed rituals at precise times, along with other duties, necessitated a professional priesthood. Roman sacramentalism and their priesthood are vestiges of Babylonian paganism readily adopted by the later Romish church and adapted to their perverted interpretations of the New Testament in order to satisfy their desire for control over the people. None of this can be blamed on Paul, who consistently states in his epistles that the rituals, the works of the law, have been done away with in the New Covenant. And there are many citations that explain that in Paul's letters. Even the Melchizedek priesthood mentioned by Paul in Hebrews 5, 6, 5, 10, 6, 1, and 9, 14. I'm sorry. 6, 20, and 7, chapter 7, verses 1 through 21 of Hebrews. After Psalm 110, verse 4, is said to belong to none other, to none other than Yahshua Christ. Again, any man who blames Paul for Romish churchianity and its offspring is profusely ignorant. I must also add that not only many of the early so-called church fathers, but many commentators under this very day have looked to earthly models drawn from our own historical experience as the basis for church structure. 
They have not realized that there is no proper model in our recorded experience which demonstrates how an assembly of the children of God should operate, how the kingdom of heaven should operate, except only in his guidance. The scant instructions which we have in the epistles of the New Testament and what we see in the gospel and the Acts. This model offered by the apostles remains outside of our experience since it has never been tried to any significant extent. And since those who have tried it have been persecuted, they've been suppressed, they've even been destroyed by the Romish church or various other governments. Much of what we do know of those groups which have tried to live a true Christian life is mere propaganda. Today, there are a few groups in America which come close to a true Christian model of community living, such as the Amish or the Mennonites, yet even they rely on the larger outside community, tourist dollars, for a good part of their sustenance. Though many commentators have accepted the structure adopted by the Romish church, a blending of old Rome's paganism and its model of imperial government, as if such a model were based on the scripture, which it certainly is not. Yet others might look to the Jewish or Judean Sanhedrin as a proper model, which it is not, since it was a sectarian and oligarchical form of government. Many other alternative models are based on greed and a desire to concentrate power while appearing on the surface to be righteous. Mormonism is one example of these. We have seen here that the authority of assembly elders should not transcend the immediate community, each which should elect its own leaders. Anything more than that is not based on Scripture. There is not one legitimate religious authority with U.S. government tax-exempt status, IRS 501c3. Such status is a reward by the government granted only if the organization holding it agrees to follow certain guidelines. True Christianity, an exclusive, racist, discriminating doctrine, cannot possibly be found operating within those guidelines. That true Christianity is racist can be found as quickly as one can examine the language of Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 48, or Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. They are the parables of the net and the parable of the sheep and the goats, which by themselves should be enough to support the statements I've offered here although many more scriptures follow suit. This is only one issue, albeit a major one, where tax-exempt churches capitulate to government guidelines. A very good example is Bob Jones University in South Carolina, which did this very thing in recent years. It's one prominent and very public example. What happened at Bob Jones University was that they, according to scripture, forbid interracial dating on campus. They did that up until George W. Bush, the second George Bush, right? He decided to give a campaign speech there. 
And there was a media uproar because Bob Jones was such a racist university. And Bob Jones, shrinking at the media attention, changed their policy on interracial dating. A year later, the IRS granted them a 501c3 tax exemption, which they never had before because of their policy on interracial dating. That happened, I think, in Bush's second election campaign in 2004. Yet as Yahweh raised judges and leaders for the children of Israel, as he deemed it necessary, so even now, he will raise two ministers and elders for his people. As the children of Israel awaken and get out of Babylon, which includes all of those tax-exempt phony churches, even though we must continue to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, then as we render unto Yahweh what is his, Babylon will crumble under its own weight, for not enough of the people of God shall be left to support it any longer. Christians should get out of the world and seek to govern themselves. And to do that, we can expect nothing from the governments of the world. And we will be successful. Thank you for listening. I will be here on Friday, this coming Friday, with a discussion of the prophecy of Malachi. And then next Saturday, I will try to do a um, a shorter topic and, and encourage some callers because I haven't taken any callers in a while on this program. Of course, I will only take callers of people I know and not of the trolls. So, and, and I see there are a couple of them pestering the chat room. That's okay. The people of God are known by their fruits. And I don't think that one of their fruits is trolling. Thank you for listening. This is William Fink, org. Good night. Praise Yahweh.